Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at the penultimate class of this Eightfold Path Structure <laughs> Study. This is a, a class of, uh, or based on a, uh, an article that I wrote probably five or six years ago. I can't remember when. There's a date on it somewhere. Um, but this includes three or four uh, snippets of three or four suttas uh, that relate to right intention. Um, we talked a little bit about right intention on our What's, what is today? Today's Saturday. At our Tuesday class, uh, I think. And this just expands on that. This is a, um, it's a easily understood aspect of the Eightfold Path, but it's often misunderstood, or uh, in many instances, instances in, in, uh, especially in modern Buddhism by common agreement, uh, it's not even addressed. I have a friend of mine who is a, modern Buddhist practitioner and we've had this ongoing discussion for 20 years now where he insists that there's no there's no such thing as intention in the Dhamma of course his practice is just meditation so there is no real intention in that but this is this is a key to the Dhamma so let me read my words and some of the Buddhist words too uh, my words right intention develops the true meaning of emptiness again this is the modern application of emptiness is that emptiness is some kind of um, uh, vacuous void that we're all supposed to aspire to. It's never clearly explained, except everybody understands what the word emptiness is. Uh, and this is also part of the school that teaches that uh, nothingness is really the goal of understanding what the Buddha taught, meaning literally complete annihilation of your uh, ability to think is what that, that teaching is. And it has nothing to do with that. Emptiness means to empty yourself of the cause of our discontent, empty ourselves of ignorance. Right intention develops the meaning of emptiness, to empty oneself of clinging to views rooted in ignorance. Uh, it is a cultivation of moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness of the Eightfold Path that, that develops release from clinging in a mind of lasting peace. Release from clinging is the condition that the Buddha describes as awakened, a mind of lasting peace, as a quality of mind of an awakened human being. You remember in the 12 uh, links of dependent origination that uh, from feeling as a requisite condition comes craving. And we, we come in contact with something in the world that creates a reaction to us. I just have a nice, just had a nice piece of chocolate cake. I didn't, by the way, but I'd like to. And I want another one. The contact with the first piece of cake created the craving because my mind is unrestrained and I have something that's pleasurable I naturally go to I want more of this more eye making so that that craving now institutes a clinging the next step in dependent origination clinging and maintaining from craving as a requisite condition come clinging and maintaining this is the root of our ongoing ignorance something has provided some type of sensory stimulation and we attach ourselves to it through eye-making, through our self-identification, through nama-rupa. And now that I've identified it as myself, I have to maintain it, don't I? I have to cling to it and maintain the process that brought it up. And what was the process that brought the craving for the next piece of chocolate cake? Contact with the first piece. An unrestrained mind coming in con contact with anything that is pleasurable will lead to clinging and maintaining clinging and maintaining to what? To the ignorant view that made the piece of chocolate, the second piece of cake, necessary. Of course, nobody needs a second piece of chocolate cake. Nobody needs a first piece of chocolate cake. But because I want it, it becomes paramount to me. And don't get in my way. And you better not put that chocolate cake in another place in, like your belly because I'm going to get very upset with you because it's mine. It has my name on it. And we do that with everything. We put our names on everything that we attach. I make them too has our name on it, whether you know whether it's aversion uh, or craving. It's rooted in the ongoing deluded thinking of I making. So, right intention 
is the, uh, the aspect of the Eightfold Path that gets to the heart of the matter. Throughout the Pali Canon, right intention is described as a cause, a condition, and a quality of mind. As one factor of the Eightfold Path, the Buddha describes right view in conjunction with right intention. Right view leads to right intention. As the initial understanding and action, there's something we have to do here, necessary for the development of the other factors of the path. Excuse me. The Buddhist words. And how is right view the forerunner for further development? How is right view the forerunner for the Dhamma? With right view, one understands wrong intention as wrong intention. So based in, initially in right view. And again, the beginning establishment of the Dhamma is recognizing that my view is a wrong view. It's rooted in ignorance of the Four Noble Truths. And so the purpose of the Dhamma now is to develop right view. What is going to hinder me from developing awakened right view is right intention. Wrong intention is holding the intention for constant sensory fulfillment, for constant eye-making, for ill will and being harmful. Right intention is the intention. We had a great talk in a teacher's class about um, modern engaged Buddhism and uh, social justice and social engineering and how does that... Uh, come in conflict with come in conflict with conflict. That's the word. Come in conflict <laughs> with the Dhamma. And we come in conflict with the What's that? They're picking up the duck. That, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Conflict. <laughs> it's the same thing. When we come in, come in contact with the duck. Conflict. <laughs> um it is at that point that, we're, that we, 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 that we have the choice for awakening or to continue ignorance through clinging and maintaining. And this, we do this, again, we do this with everything. And when we start looking at it, some of the things that we cling to will be laughable to us. It might not be laughable to other people, but such as clinging to the idea that I can speak without making mistakes is a wrong view. This is right effort, the sixth factor of the Eightfold Path. Being mindful to abandon wrong intention, okay? So we have to first accept that my intention up until now is a wrong intention. I'm, I'm intending on maintaining eye-making. So we have to address that. It has to be something that we're um, eager and willing to address as Dhamma practitioners. Being mindful to abandon wrong intention and develop and maintain right intention is right mindfulness or refined mindfulness, the seventh factor of the Eightfold Path. These three qualities of right view, right effort, and right mindfulness inform and support right intention. That was the Buddha's words, as my words. As the second factor of the Eightfold Path, excuse me, right intention is clearly the cause for the condition of awakening. Following right view, right intention provides the motivation and really the direction for right effort and points the mind to right mindfulness to hold in mind the abandonment of clinging to objects and views. So there's a circular aspect or a cohesive aspect of the Eightfold Path. Of course, we talk linearly, so we have to describe the Eightfold Path, right view, right intention, etc. But there's aspects of each factor of the Eightfold Path and all the other ones, and of course the entire Eightfold Path can be characterized as awakened right view. Later developments and accommodations or dismissal to the Eightfold Path to allow for substitution of the intention to, of becoming a bodhisattva or bodhisattva, which is the modern, almost every school of Buddhism, um, even some modern Theravadan views, uh, lineages, will take the bodhisattva or bodhisattva ideal as their entire practice. What is a bodhisattva or bodhisattva ideal? It's the idea and it's the vow that I will put aside my awakening. Even though I could, I'll put aside my awakening because I'm awake. Look at how this relates to salvation. I'll put aside my awakening until all humanity is awakened. That is great compassion, isn't it? <clears throat> it's great sensitivity to human beings. And it's a lot of BS. Because it denies the first noble truth. As a consequence of having a human life, they are going to be suffering. 
Who the hell am I to stop it? I can only stop it in myself. This, again, it starts informing right view, doesn't it? I'm not here to save the world. I'm here to end conflict in my mind. And if I can do that, and we all can do it, then I can stop contributing to the conflict in the world. If I, you hear me say it often, and we talked about it earlier, the most loving thing I can do for myself and for all other human beings is to maintain right intention and awaken. Because in that way, I'm no longer contributing to the greed, aversion, and delusion in the world. And look what is the cause, the root cause, of all the ills in the world. And we see it today in almost every aspect, especially the loudest aspects of life, are rooted in wrong intention. The intention to impose a salvific ideology agreed upon by, by uninformed people as to how everybody else should live. And to most people, it sounds good because most of the catchphrases are common catchphrases. But it's all rooted in wrong intention. And therein is why people with great intention, in reference to crusades or modern jihad, people with really good intentions, by the way, Putin has a really good intention in his mind. It is a right intention, of course, it's a wrong intention. People with right intent, with a, a wrong intention rooted in what they feel is compassion but also informed by ignorance, have caused great harm and historical harm throughout the year. And again, Christian crusades, modern jihad, jihad or even, you, you, even some forms of um, uh, uh, nation-building have this, the same problems as this. Um, the intention of becoming a bodhisattva failed to develop the cause of the condition of awakening. We're too concerned, overly concerned, distractedly concerned with saving others because it's a good way of not having to recognize my own ignorance. And it works really well. The Buddha consistently describes awakening as unbound or released from clinging to objects and views. I'm going to read that again and just, just apply this, maybe even to yourself, but also to what's going on in the world. The Buddha consistently describes awakening as unbound or released from clinging to objects and all views. I could have said all objects and all views. All views. Especially the view that I need to be different than I am in this moment. Because it's a foolish view. Laura, why is it a foolish view? I'm putting you on the spot. If you don't have the answer, it's okay. Why is it a foolish view that I'm the center or point of reference? Or, or that I need to be any different than I am? Well, it's because it's delusion, it's not reality, and it's... Why is it a delusion? Because it stems from wrong view or ignorance or... Yeah, because I can't be anything different than I am right now. How could I? Right. Again, I keep saying this, Popeye was right. I am what I am. And I always will be what I am. And the Tarragatha says, what is to be is what is here. What I am to be is what I am. I can't be anything else than I am in this moment. And if I'm awakened, I'll know that I can never be anything else than what I am in this moment. If I'm ignorant, I'll always be striving to be something different than I am. I'll always be striving for more, or maybe less. But both of those views are rooted in ignorance. Why? Why are those, both of those views rooted in ignorance, Ron? <clears throat> I was thinking about something. <laughs> <laughs> Jen? If I want to be different than, than I am in this moment, and then I am distracted from what I am in this moment. That's right. And if I am distracted from what I am in this moment, then I am not addressing what I am in this moment. Yeah, and, and guess what? You're not living your life. Right. You're living in your imagination. You're living in an ideal. And it's always stressful. Always. Any fabrication is stressful. It has to be. Because once I fabricate something, now I have to maintain it. I have to cling to it and maintain it. Ram, I'm interested. Do you want to share what you were talking about? I mean, it's, I mean, again, I know I'm putting on your on the spot. It's already gone. Okay. <laughs> I'm stretching. I have so those too. My hand, but I think you thought. John, I think you thought I was it, raising my hand. Isn't it also another application of emptiness that to cling to these aggregates that have no reality, no substance, 
Isn't yeah. it the emptiness? Yeah. It's a description of, of aggregates. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Th- thank you, David. The, we are emptying ourselves of clinging, specifically clinging these five aggregates. And the, the next uh, structured study is going to be on the five clinging aggregates, by the way. Yay! Mm-hmm. Uh, is just that. So we, we are literally emptying ourselves of clinging what? Clinging these five aggregates together to maintain a self that can only be prone to stress and suffering, prone to birth, aging, <coughs> sickness, and death, prone to, to reacting to not getting what it wants or receiving what it don't want, doesn't want. That's a baby, isn't it? It's an immature human being that would act that way, that would complain about not getting what it wants in this moment. But we all do it. I mean, that, that's why I describe awakening as full human maturity, because it is. Someone who is fully matured knows what it means to be what they are. I don't know why, but this is the only path or teaching that I've ever come across, and I've looked at a lot of different things, because I used to look for salvation. This is the one thing that didn't get me what I was looking for, but gave me exactly what I needed, was understanding. And once I understood that I can't be anything more than a six-property person, I, I shouldn't say once, but developing the idea and the understanding that all I can be is a six-property person ends craving for and clinging to be anything different than that based on reality, based on, yes, this is all I can be. I might, as a six-property person, play center field for the Yankees. There's still a possibility, especially this year. They don't have any outfielders <laughs> besides Judge, but I'm... You know, he's, I got, he's got nothing on me. Sorry. <laughs> I said it for thanks for the laugh. I said it. I said it for, for the same reason Richard Pryor used to say things. That they could laugh. Um, when I was a little kid, little kid, I'm talking about 12, 13, 14, you know, as we first start getting a sense of self at five, six, seven years old, that's the beginning of eye making, isn't it? Because we don't know any better at that point. And by five or six years later, in my mid-teens, I was incredibly frustrated and incredibly angry for a young kid growing up in middle-class America. But it was because I wasn't getting anything I wanted. And every Christmas, I got a lot of good stuff, but none of it was what I wanted. But I didn't know what I wanted, and I didn't know where to find it. I kept thinking it was out there, you know, for, for... Ten years, I thought it was going to be at the bottom of a vodka bottle or bottom of a bag of dope. And it never was. But I always thought it was. I always thought it was in something else that I could acquire or something else that I could do or something, some other way of being seen other than at some point, one point in my life, as a fall-down drunk, which I thought was all the answers. You know, it, it, That's why that's such an interesting thing to me now because if, if you've ever been addicted to any substance, including shopping or sex or golf, you'll understand it, that once you get the substance, it didn't provide anything that you wanted. You just want more. Mm-hmm. It's never enough. For people like me, it almost caused my, almost drank and drugged myself to death very close, within minutes, twice. And even after that, I couldn't wait to have more. Mm-hmm. And wanting more didn't stop until I didn't want any more. And again, I, I still deal with a lot of people in addiction and they ask me, what's the secret? to stopping addiction. And I say, you got to stop wanting more. It's an easy thing to say. It's very difficult to do, but that's really the key. But it's the key to anything. It's the end of what we're talking about. It's the end of clinging. Do I want more in this moment or not? And if I can honestly say, no, I'm content, I've awakened. Does anybody here, including online, you could raise your hand or holler, does anybody think they can't develop a conflict-free mind now that you know how to do it? Does anybody? It is. It's completely doable. This is for human beings to to do. And we're so fortunate that we have the to-do list in front of us. I like the to-do list. Another book, the to-do list. And the Deva Daka, the Deva... I can't read the word. Deva Taka Sutta. The Buddha describes... The assembled to the assembled monks that without right intention, the intention to recognize and abandon clinging, the mind remains confused and split between an altruistic goal, but lacking the heightened wisdom developed through mindful recognition and renunciation of clinging. Tom, this and Mateo, this is what we talked about and uh, relates to what we talked about 
in our teacher's class earlier. The Buddha's words. Monks, prior to my awakening, and this is an important line that he says often, when I was an unawakened bodhisattva or bodhisattva. So if the Buddha describes the quality of mind of a bodhisattva as unawakened, why does most of modern Buddhism take that as the goal and not understand this? And I did. I took my vows in a rather elaborate ceremony in this beautiful uh, monastery uh, in, uh, outside of in Woodstock, New York. You might have, remember I told you about that? Yeah, we were there. Uh, yeah, it's a beautiful place, isn't it? And it, this was an elaborate ceremony uh, over three days, um, full of the Dhamma, you know, and I went through the whole process. And almost as soon as I took my vows, I started having second thoughts. And about two and a half weeks later, I went through a little ritual because I thought that was important to, uh, to disavow this vow that I took. But it was because I finally understood how ridiculous it is and how I did not want to take a vow to do something like that, to put aside my own awakening till all other sentient beings are awakened. It sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds like what we should do. It sounds selfless, but it's completely rooted in ignorance because the first thing I have to do and the only thing I have to do is awaken. So then maybe I can, I can assist others in their awakening if they want, but that's not the point either. It wasn't the point of Siddhartha Gautama awakening. He wanted to understand and develop a common peaceful mind, to develop a mind that is free of conflict. So why would I maintain an ideology that can only maintain conflict? Why? Because I'm lacking understanding of how to change it. Monks, prior to my awakening, when I was unawakened bodhisattva, I thought I could continue to divide my thinking. I continued thinking intended on sensuality, ill will and harmfulness, and thinking intended on renunciation, goodwill and harmlessness. So how could you do it? And What a perfect description of a mind in conflict. Mm-hmm. I want to be a good person, but I can't. That was where my frustration came when I was 12, 13, 14, 15, 25, 26, 30, 31. I wanted to be a good person, but I kept failing. And it wasn't that I was failing in, I wasn't murdering people or I wasn't engaging in any um, overtly antisocial behavior, but my thinking was all screwed up. I hated myself. There were people in the world that I hated. There were things in the world that I hated, such as poverty such as the hurricanes, such as bad presidents, such as unkind girlfriends, you know, just take a list, such as that bad golf shot I had on the ninth hole three weeks ago. All this crap that human beings drag around and say, this ain't good enough. It's because I didn't understand any of it. As I remain mindful and well-concentrated, thinking with the intention of clinging arose in me, these are Buddha's words again. I now recognize that thinking with the intention of clinging has arisen in me. He has developed a measure of concentration and now he's able to see what he's doing, what he's doing to himself. Thinking with the intention of clinging brings suffering for me and others. Again, the Buddha's describing his own awakening, his own understanding. Thinking with the intention of clinging brings suffering for me and others. Another way of saying that is if in this moment, I am intent on constant eye-making, nama-rupa, applying a name to what's occurring, name and form. I'm only creating suffering. So again, the, the big question everybody has, it's, it's usually manifest in, in indirect ways, such as how can I get salvation in another life or another fabricated mind state. It's the end, it's the, end the clinging of eye-making in this moment. Again, to not want this moment to be any different than it is. Thinking with the intention of clinging brings suffering for me and others. This thinking can only lead to more ignorance and does not develop unbinding from clinging. So again, it makes sense to, when you say it this way that living with, within ignorance will only maintain ignorance. It's included in the word to ignore. And ongoing ignorance requires that aspect of the root of the word ignorance. We have to have a system of constant distraction so that we can ignore our own ignorance. One of the most <clears throat> successful ways, although very hurtful to others, is the idea of salvation. Again, I just as an example, look at, this, look at the Crusades or modern jihad or Putin. Putin, Putin Adolf Hitler I, used, I often use, 
in their minds, they were doing just what they needed for what? For salvation. Hitler, again, everybody knows this history. Hitler's salvation, he thought that the only people that should be saved were the Aryans. In his mind, he was right. He was serving humanity by, by eliminating everyone that wasn't of that pure blood because it was only pure-blooded people that had a right to live in the world. That was his view. Look at the view we have today. It's just as divisive, isn't it? Classifying people as these people are worth living, those aren't. If you don't agree with me, you should not have a life. You need to be canceled. In fact, we've taken it so far that we need to cancel an entire culture to develop something else. Why? For, because a few minds that are rooted in salvation, rooted in wrong view, think that we all need it. And they're putting it on everyone. And again, I'm not, I'm, this is not a commentary on how awful the world is now. The Buddha described this 2,600 years ago. There is dukkha. As I noticed that wrong intent, the Buddha's words, as I noticed that wrong intention de- develops more suffering, wrong intention subsided. Again, now he's talking from a well-concentrated mind, now framed by understanding. As I noticed that wrong intention develops more suffering, wrong intention subsided. He's telling us how to do it, how to end wrong intention and develop right intention. Subsequently, when wrong intention arose in me, I simply abandoned it. No analysis, no figuring out where it came from, no, no, no a lifetimes on, on couches talking about the past, who to blame, or maybe something wrong with me. No, we simply abandon it. How can we do something like that that we've been clinging to for 10, 20, 30, 40, or 66 years? Through a well-concentrated mind. Obviously, it's the only way to do something, to, to dig out that kind of dirt within me and not feel like I need to take it to therapy. And I'm not putting down therapy. I'm talking, now I'm talking about how to deal with these things in Dhamma. Therapy has saved people's lives, and sometimes it's the <clears> only <throat> thing that will get people to the point where they can let go of that. So again, just keep that in mind. I'm not, I'm not against therapy. It's just not the Dhamma. And so this avoids years and years of self-indulgence of what's wrong with me, what do I need to do to change, what's the next mental trick that, that will heal me, or do I just need to change the way I'm thinking, because that's where it lies, doesn't it? All of my frustration when I was, frustration, I can't talk today, Aflac, all of my Aflac when I was 12 or 13 years old, is rooted in the same type of thinking. And so what I learned at 5, 6, 7, 12, 13, 14, 25, 26, 27, I just kept dragging it with me. And I kept insisting that this view that is rooted in really just just constant ignorance somehow has to make sense of the world. How could it? And again, I'm not blaming the world or my parents or or schools or anybody. Nobody teaches this. Why? Because if they did, the first noble truth wouldn't be the first noble truth. There wouldn't be dukkha. The world is a flame. A flame with what? A flame with the fire is a passion. It just is. It's the plane of existence that we live in. It will not be any different in this moment. It may tomorrow. But right here, right now, there is no salvation save for the way that I think about myself in relation to what's occurring. When wrong intention arose in me, I simply abandoned it. My words, even altruistic intentions can lead to further confusion and suffering, as the Buddha teaches teaches here. If there continues a clinging view lacking wisdom, developing a view of self attached to impermanent concepts must eventually be recognized as focused in wrong views, wrong intention, and abandoned if developing as awakened human as an awakened human being is to be realized. In other words, all of the eye-making associated with doing good deeds must be abandoned. It doesn't mean that we're going to stop doing good deeds. It just means that there will be a natural expression of who I am rather than who I'm trying to become, the Savior, you know, the, the good God. Um, I think everybody, maybe mostly everybody, is afflicted with the disease of people-pleasing to one extent or another. And that is always painful. Always. Even if it's just to you. But often... It creates pain for other people. 
Again, another good example of people pleasing would be Adolf Hitler. He was trying to, pl- to please uh, Heinrich Himmler and everybody else that was with him. You know? And he, when he got that sign, he knew. He knew that his, sa- his salvation plan was working. That's what kept him going. We do that to ourselves every time we say, ha, ah, yeah, that's me, I got it. Or, ah, I got rid of that, I don't, I'm no longer that person. We don't do that. We don't do any of that. We simply recognize clinging in this moment and do what? Everybody, abandon, abandon it. <laughs> and abandon if, if, if developing as, a human, as an awakened human being is to be realized. Uh, I'm not sure what sutta this is from, but the, the Buddha's words, practicing the Dhamma for one's own benefit and for others is to be praised. Practicing the Dhamma for yourself and for others is to be praised. It's the only thing that Buddha teaches to be praised. The most loving thing, again, I say it better than Siddhartha, the most loving thing we can do for all sentient beings is to take the aflac and awaken. <laughs> Sorry about that. I have to. Being mind, my words, being mindful of right, intent, of right intention to awaken with the understanding that like the Buddha, an awakened human being, then, then assist others in ending suffering with, in, in engagement with the Dhamma. The Buddha did not send monks out to teach the Dhamma until they had awakened themselves. Once awakened, teaching the Buddha's Dhamma was simply an expression of their awakening. In the Majima Nikaya, the Buddha teaches, that, teaches his son Rahula that in thought, word, and deed, one should be mindful of right attention, the Buddha's words to his son. In thought, word, and deed, always be mindful of the consequences. And the Buddha's consequences it's talking about, is it going to lead to suffering or to awakening? Will the consequences be painful, or will they develop unbinding? And that's the only choice we have in each moment. Is my choice in this moment leading to awakening, towards false human maturity? Or is my choice to maintain ignorance, to continue stress and suffering? If through mindfulness you know your thoughts, words, and deeds will lead to further confusion and suffering, you should abandon them. Again, that's all we do is abandon them. No analysis, no blame, no trying to figure anything out. No great insight. It is insight into these three marks. What is leading to greed, aversion, and deluded thinking is clinging. If through mindfulness you know that your thoughts, words, and deeds will develop peaceful consequences, developing and binding, the Buddha's words... Now you may continue. Now, but only now, should we continue. If through mindfulness you know that your thoughts, words, and deeds will develop peaceful consequences, developing unbinding, you may continue. So it takes a well-concentrated mind and a, a, um, a quality of circumspection that is framed by the Eightfold Path in order to come to that conclusion and avoid any type of salvific intention. With a quality of mind and right intention, informing thoughts, words, and deeds, living within the framework of the Eightfold Path becomes possible and effective. With a quality of mind of right intention, informing thoughts, words, and deeds, living within the framework of the Eightfold Path now becomes possible and effective. In the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha succinctly teaches right intention as the Buddha's words, being mindful of right intention is to recognize and renounce clinging, to remain free from ill will, and to remain harmless. This is right intention. Does anybody think they can't maintain right intention? Honestly, it's okay if you say no. Because this is really what we, what we come up against. And even that last line, to remain harmless, I would bet there's some of us that don't uh, maintain complete harmlessness at all times. In other words, every now and then we say, ah, that guy's a real joker. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Or that person is just hurting, hurting us because they don't have my ideals. That's not remaining harmless. Even if that other person is doing something that is harmful towards others. It's not for me to bash their head in. 
It's for me to understand. Because all of the... We have been, be, uh, been engaged in social engineering since we first walked out of our caves and began forming small groups. We've always tried to engineer how we live together. And I would suggest that it hasn't worked very well because the Loka Sutta is still playing out. We've created systems that allow us to live uh, within a, a, a certain economies and with certain levels of societal hierarchy but we haven't figured out how to stop killing each other. Yet. We haven't figured out how to stop stealing from each other. Even peaceful people haven't figured out how to stop taking too much. <coughs> as the Buddha teaches. You know that old saying that life is a banquet, don't leave the, don't leave the table hungry. Well, the Buddha would say, I would say, life is a banquet, leave some for others. You know, take just enough. Stop clinging to things that we think that I think I need. Because I don't need the biggest hut with the most coconuts. At one time in my life I did. And it's really a crappy way to live. Excuse my language. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, for, just for solely for the acquisition of things. And that might, we might cloud that in, in different ways, but it still is usually rooted in that, those aspects of what am I adding to myself? How many coconuts can I carry? And it all just contributes to the suffering of all people. But most importantly, and selfishly, because that's the way we should think, to me. Bright intention is emphasized, my words, emphasized throughout the Pali Canon and is the motivation for Dhamma practice. Without the cultivation of right intention, practice can easily be distracted and lose focus of the Buddha's stated goal of the Dhamma to abandon clinging to all objects and views. Being mindful of right intention, holding in mind the strong resolve to abandon clinging, will directly develop the quality of mind of equanimity, a balanced quality of mind, a mind that is calm and peaceful no matter what is occurring. With nothing attached to, there is nothing to afflict or agitate the mind. How could there be? We can create a quality of mind that is quite secluded from the world while we are in the world. In fact, that's the whole point of the Dhamma. The, the point of the Dhamma is not to go live in a cave and stay there. Even the Buddha didn't do that in the original Sangha. They went into town every day. The Buddha is meant for human beings to develop and live a human life. Some people may choose to completely leave humanity, and that's okay if that's your choice. But you don't have to to develop the Dhamma. Um, I think that's the Yeah, the rest is just my footnotes. So that's the end of today's talk. Um, emphasizing, but I don't, I don't think overemphasizing the need uh, as Dharma practitioners to maintain uh, this, the mindfulness and the willingness to abandon clinging in this moment. And, and that is, when I talk about the Dhamma is practiced with rise restraint in this moment as life occurs. Not in the past, not in the future. So we need to bring our Dhamma practice and our emptiness of clinging into right here and right now. We can prepare ourselves for this present moment on our cushion and coming to class like we do in developing an understanding of the Eightfold Path, like we have done uh, in a very profound way, I would say, in these last 12 weeks. So, Thank you. Let's go online. Uh, Mary, how are you? I'm good. How are you, John? Mary, can I hold you up for a second? Scott, I'm sorry. I meant to call you because I know you got to leave. Would you, do you have anything you'd like to say before you go? Um, it's not on the topic, but just wanted to thank you for a piece of advice uh, that I heard, I think, in a recorded talk about taking advantage of a second meditation each day. Oh, yeah. In the evening. Uh, it's not easy to meditate at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. or whatever those times are. The right. evening is hard. Yeah. But having that second sit in the evening somehow gives a momentum for the morning. Yes. It, yeah. I, everybody that has taken that suggestion have said exactly the same thing, maybe sometimes slightly different words, but there's something about that two sit, the second sit. And just since we're talking about it, the second sit, if we're sitting for 20 minutes or a half an hour in the morning and it's too hard to do that in the afternoon, it's okay to make your second sit a little shorter, you know, or even much shorter, but mm-hmm. most important is just to do it. So thank you for bringing that to, 
little bit of Aflac to us here this morning. <laughs> thank you, Scott. Thank you. Mary. Hi, John. Um, well, his comments reminded me that, like, sometimes I, when I'm traveling, I have long days or I have to take people out to dinner or whatever, and you have to try to fit in the second sit or you look forward to sitting, you know, fitting that in. And um, shortly, I, I'm in healthcare now, and I I know exactly where all the chapels or meditation rooms are um, in the hospitals, you know, and they're very underutilized. So it's a very nice space if I can fit that in around four or five in the afternoon. If I'm not able to get back to my hotel room, it's a beautiful thing, and you can usually fit in 20 minutes. So with a with good intention, um, that's been very helpful to me to find those uh, places that I can have a sit, if even if it's unorthodox, because I was trying to do it in my hotel room in the morning and in my hotel room at night, and I don't always have control over my day. So yeah. um, anyway, that's been very helpful. Um, but what I was going to say about the sutta is that, um, is the word understanding. It's such um, a strong and meaningful word here because the understanding um, leads to the unbinding and uh, it can almost be guaranteed, right? Yeah. So understanding, and we've all had moments of clarity and then it feels like there's been a release and something's been abandoned, but it's through the practice on your cushion to build up the hard wiring um, to ensure that you're experiencing that as you come up against things in your real life as well. And, um, and, and so just when I think of the word understanding, like that alone provides a lot of peace and tranquility to me uh, because that's what we're here to do. And it's when we're not understanding that we're off the path, we're, caught up in something else and it's really easy to see and get back on the path when the more the more you do this so thank you for the teaching john thank you mary good morning brian morning john uh i I guess for me today it's the the sensory fulfillment piece really jumped out and and just how i mean it's it's everything right like everything we do is based on our senses yeah and, and being mindful of every single aspect of that on a moment-by-moment moment basis, it's that concentration just to keep that all in mind and, and to abandon what's unskillful and develop what is skillful is has just been so meaningful for me. Yeah. Uh, and just having that right view that, that it is all sense. Yeah. And, and it's just we're, we're interpreting all of this, right? Like it, it's it's not happening to us. It's... It, it, it's us. Yeah, it's clearly defined. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, Brian. You. Hello, Mateo. Hi, everybody. Um, so, uh, about the right tension, I think, um, you know, a lot of, as you say, probably in your sutra, a lot of people they misunderstand what right tension means now because it's like uh, they think just, oh, I want to be good, done, right tension. But then they, they they don't put like any action, uh, so they don't unfold the or the noble path, yeah. or, uh, or or even worse, they just they just have want to have a right intention because you know the society think that's is what you should do. No, you have to be a good boy, or because like the because the bold guy told me to do that, yeah, <laughs> or because Jesus nice. did that. So all these kind of to, you know even even worse because maybe they want to get a reward in a supposed to be afterlife. So all a very. Uh, probably is a wrong intention. No? You want to be good for the wrong reason. Yeah. And uh, all these people I take from this sutra today, yeah. Uh, thank you, Matteo. Hello, Tom. Hi, John. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for the teachings. I will take nobles. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. Becky. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, John. Can you see Becky? No. And I wrote down that we must... Now you can. 
Oh, hi. <laughs> um, we must be able to remain harmless. We must be able to be present. Yeah. In the moment. Because if we're not present, we will not we do not understand what's happening. Yep. Like Mary said. And if we can't or don't understand what's happening, there's no way that we can remain harmless. Yeah. Because right. we will respond or react rather out of ignorance. Yep. Yep. And so I I just feel that remaining harmless is the goal. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> you have to be mindful of that, of the right intention to remain present and remain concentrated and do everything you can do to have a, a mind that is concentrated really all the time to remain harmless. Yeah. That's right. And that's just really, that's really hard, but that's what we're working toward. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, it is. I mean, I, I hesitate to say the word hard. You know that. Well, I know, but it's... But, but it, I mean, I, but I don't, I, I, it is. But sitting in this seat, I don't want to emphasize that. It, it's hard, but it's, it's humanly doable. And it's only hard Absolutely. because of what we're clinging to. Yeah, but that's a real thing. It, just to say it like that, it's only clinging that keeps us stuck. That's true, mm -hmm. but it doesn't diminish how uh, the right effort that's necessary. Absolutely. And I would say constant right effort at, constant at, at some right point effort. Yes. To, to do this. But that's the reason, but we can have, we can develop, develop constant right effort through concentration. That's how we maintain it. So you bring up some really important points. Thank you, Becky. Thank you, John. Hello, Dr. Kevin. Hello, how are you? I can't call you that anymore, can I? I think I'm still a doctor. Yeah, so definitely. Still you can doctor. call him Dr. Doctor. Doctor Emeritus Kevin. There we go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I forgot everything I knew. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but I'm trying, trying to stick to the doctor. Well, so, I just don't want to be clinging your past to your present. So, but. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, thank you. Pupil's comments are, are just so deep and so profound, and I really... Um, I have nothing else to add. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Lauren. Good morning. Thank, Thank you so much. Am I getting much, people? Um, sorry for my congestions. Rain is kicking up my seat while allergies, <laughs> yeah. so don't be too disturbed by oh. how I sound. Glad you um, too. I've been working um, a few times a week with three and four year olds, wow. and I am observing firsthand how. Craving and clinging is really a, a lifelong struggle, um, yeah. and it, it seems to just uh, change shape as you as you get older. And it's you know, at, as adults, we can guide children to a certain level of maturity. But then you know, for me, I, I without the dhamma, it felt kind of like a stagnant. Like okay, I've learned yeah. what I can of how to be a human. How you know, how do you progress beyond these? adult versions of craving and clinging and um the dom has been so helpful for that and, and to answer your question of if anyone struggles um with right intention i i think that it's hard to identify for me sometimes if i'm experiencing wrong intention you know because you feel so so right you know you feel so firmly rooted in, in whatever it is oh yeah yeah thinking so that that's for me, like the, the hardest obstacle. Yeah, you, it's such a good point. I, 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 were you finished, Lauren? Yes. Because yeah, you made such you. a good point, I jumped in there. That's why we need a framework of the Eightfold Path, so that we can we can actually see see the eye making in it and abandon it through that. You know, here's here's the lens on this clinging. Uh, what is my intention? Is my intention to to continue eye making and continue a lifestyle that is prone to stress and suffering, or Am I going to abandon what's occurring? And in the moment, we're not abandoning 
everything. We're just abandoning what's arising in this moment as well. And again, it's not. I don't have to drag or review my past life or my past five minutes. Recognize in this moment there is stress. And this is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. And it it resolves it. It resolves the issue. It's the it's a truly healing <coughs> practice in that way because it it heals our minds. Thank you, Lauren. Good morning, Laura. Hi, John. So, I guess I'm realizing more and more that, um, although this is very obvious, and I don't know why I'm not getting this important concept, but just, like, after today, it's like, wow, the, the Eightfold Path is really just, like, this internal inner process that only I am, like, responsible for it has nothing to I I guess when I first came here I was like oh right intention right view right speech it's involving other people but really it does come down to just me and taking responsibility for how am I unfolding in this you know present moment am I here am I abandoning clinging craving I have it's not important at all for me to think about other people or like you talk about um which really clicked for me it was like a breakthrough when we were talking and you brought it up here too like oh this idea that we have to save other people or i have to save this person or save myself or and we think that's good and we think that's helpful but really it's kind of harmful like Really, the focus is on, you know, here and now and me taking responsibility for, you know, myself and yeah. nothing else. So. Yeah, it, it, you, you have such a profound understanding of the Dhamma. That's it, Laura. Uh, and and you're, you're <clears throat> describing how to end conflict in your mind. Like, mm-hmm. Stop trying to save the world. And, yeah. And, uh, it's resulting in a more calm and peaceful mind, I would bet. Yeah, I'm starting to understand, you know, these really deep-seated conflicts that I kind of am conditioned. Yeah, that's right. You know? Yeah. And you also see that you're doing it. It's not, it's not just even just coming to class as regularly as you do, that that's enough. It's not just coming to class. It's mm-hmm. coming to class, learning, and applying it. And you're doing it. I, I say that because... Um, most of the, um, most of my Buddhist practice was showing up and again, as I said, in many different ways and then getting a reward for it at some point, mm-hmm. just because I, I came and I bought into a certain ideology that that was enough. <coughs> <coughs> and it just never makes sense, does it? It, it can't, no. but, but this does. And yeah. you've also had, I can say this, ask this to Lauren too because you both came in at the same time, you both had this experience of the efficacy of the Dhamma. It's working. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you might not be quite at the full human maturity state, but you can feel it. You realize that it's... Am I putting words in your mouth, Lauren? That it's, po- it's possible. Yeah. It's something you can do because you're doing it yourself. And so it's just a matter of keeping... It's just like, you know, you know how to make a cup of tea. You did it once. You can you probably do it again. We know how to meditate. We know what the Eightfold Path is. And now we know how to practice it in this moment. Very good. Thank you for for that. Dhamma Teacher Ram. (sighs) This has been a really good discussion. Here we go. Um, And the the teacher meeting before this, the same way. I missed that. I didn't even realize there was one. Yeah, it was, was, I was like, was there a teacher meeting today? That I did not get it on my paper agenda. Sorry, everybody. That's okay. It was on the calendar, and somehow I must have deleted it inadvertently, too. So. Oh, it was uh, on the Google okay. calendar, yeah. yeah. was but, not on my yeah. agenda. I'll it'll, it'll be the second Saturday of every month until okay. something Got causes it. us to yeah. change it. The whole, the whole discussion about engagement in the world and, and, and those things, and then again coming back to a right intent in, in class here um, it just again shows how how this 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 network of the eightfold path is just so um, 
so well set up. Yeah. It, it, everything supports uh, all the other things, and then you find yeah. <clears throat> you find delusion in in one aspect of of your life. Uh, you can directly apply uh, the eightfold path to it. Doesn't matter, you know, when it happens, where it happens, yeah. how far away from from you it is. You know, it, it can be happening right in your in your family uh, connections. Uh, there, <clears throat> come back to okay, you know, what's my intent right now? Yeah. You know, am I agitated? You know, Oops. <laughs> uh, so yeah. But thank you for this class. Thank you. Yeah, and it's just as relevant today as it was twenty six hundred years ago. Dhamma teacher Jen. Hi, everybody. <laughs> um, yeah, basically, go, I've been thinking about what to say, what Ron just said, sort of explains where my what's been rattling around in my brain, and which is that right intention, which is the intention to hold in mind. Well, it's holding in mind the intention to abandon craving and clinging. That, what that actually means to you will deepen as you progress and it will always work. It doesn't matter where you are in your life, where you are in the Dhamma, that idea to hold in mind the intention to abandon craving and clinging always works to bring you back on the path. Yeah. So that to me is really brilliant on the part of the Buddha to and and because it drives personal responsibility mm-hmm. to what like Laura was saying come back to this, what's going on internally and taking responsibility yeah. for that yep. so that you can skillfully move through the world that that leads to you skillfully moving through the world yeah. so that is that teaching and, and and it's easy to get distracted away from that, which is, you know, yeah. the conversation mm-hmm. that you had in the beginning about mm-hmm. all the other Buddhist practices coming in and kind of removing the importance of right intention. It It's because that, if, if I can not focus on that, then I cannot focus on my personal responsibility f- yeah. for what's coming That's up right. in me, yeah. which is what we all want to avoid. Yeah. And so just... That right intention just keeps bringing you back to nope. I need to deal with this. This is this is where I am. Yeah. So yeah. beautifully explained, Dharma mm-hmm. Teacher Jane. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dharma Teacher David. Thank you. Thank you. I just don't want it on me. I thought Lauren's question and challenge about not knowing if you're in right intention was really apt. Knowing right intention defined by what this practice is, is what you were saying about Joseph Stalin had right view and right intention. Adolf Hitler had right intention. Lauren has right intention. We all have right intention. Yeah. But is it defined what this practice is? And during our teachers' meeting, uh, both Tom and Mateo were questioning how do you live in this world and do good and be a socially engaged <coughs> person? And you've always said, well, framed by the Eightfold Path will ensure that you're in the right intention. So I always try to keep that in mind and Lauren's 
challenge almost, like, how do I know if I'm right intention? Well, like you say, it's simple. It's framed by the form of the truth. And you can tell just by how you how you feel and how you think in this moment, <clears throat> if you have the right framework to recognize mm-hmm. that. Again, it's, it's the right view in the Eightfold Path makes, has this focus on what's going on in this moment. Am I moving towards ignorance or towards awakening? And that's the only choice that we ever have, or the only choice we should ever give ourselves in this moment. And that will give you that restraint while you're out in the world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Up the river. And being disappointed about the rain and, you know, social justice, well, if it's framed by the Eightfold Path, then you will have those virtuous factors yep. in check. Mm-hmm. You will have great view. And that can only come from our genre meditation and yeah. development of our mindfulness. That's right. And if I've developed that in myself, it doesn't matter who's walking beside me. I don't have to agree with them. They don't have to agree with me. And we can pick up garbage together without getting into a fight over, you know, mm-hmm. over anything. Or even not having a real meaningful uh, uh, experience in the world by being present with other people. You know, it's the, on, the only way, the only reason we should be living in the world with other people in it, instead of a, a planet Earth with just John Haspel, is because at, we have to relate to each other. You know, I used to have a, a good old friend of mine who's a Catholic priest named Father Steve. And we'd get into these great discussions about God. And uh, he was really a good guy, brilliant, brilliant mind, long past. Um, and he would always kind of conclude this at when, one way or another, but saying it this way, he said, John, and he was trying to teach me how to see God. And he would say, John, life is a relational experience, meaning it's with other people that we have any type of realization and get a real good look at ourselves. And that's where right speech and right action and right livelihood come in and follow right intention. Because it is in being mindful of our speech, action, and livelihood that we'll see our patterns of behavior. We'll see what we think about. What I'm holding in mind will always come out of my mouth. Always. It it can't not. So again, going back to right speech. And again, in meditation and in the, the circumspection that's developed through the Eightfold Path, I can look at myself and see that process, the eye-making process going on, or the awakening process. Yeah. David. And it's also what you said too, Lauren. It was clear. So, a great class. Let me get back on camera. I need to be on camera again very quickly. There. There's Mr. Aflac. Hello. Uh, Ah, Tom has left us. So we're going to conclude our uh, Eightfold Path Structured Study on Tuesday, I believe. I, there was another suit I might tack on to the end of it. Um, but uh, Move the goalposts. Yeah. <laughs> we'll finish with Meta as we always do. Give me a moment to call it up. And uh, we're, we'll be doing our... Delaware River cleanup today after breakfast at uh, uh, we're going out to the bridge I guess at the bridge cafe so anybody can join us Brian if you want to fly in quickly you could join us <laughs> Mateo's got even a longer ride but All right, take a moment to become mindful of your in breath and your out breath and let that mindfulness unite your mind and your body and these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. 
Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Peace. See you all soon. Hey, Mateo, I'll pick you up in Newark, man. Let me know. All right. Yeah, we'll be at the Kingwood boat launch. You can't miss it. Just make a left, make a left on Main Street and go three miles. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.